0: and you can get an extra three months free. ExpressVPN.com slash slash film.
1: Baseball fans, BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season. Step into the batter's box for BetMGM. swing for the fences free to play game. Pick any area of the strike zone and take your best swing. If you get a single,
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Friday, June eighteenth, twenty twenty-one. On today's episode, we're going to discuss what we've been up to at the water cooler. The Slash Film Editor, Editorial Director Peter Soretta, joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Weekend Editor Brad Oman.
3: Hey, that's
4: me,
2: Senior Writer Ben Pearson.
0: Hey, what's going on, Writer
2: Y Bowie. Hey, everyone. So Jacob and Chris are not joining us this week. They are both busy or haven't seen a lot of stuff. But uh we, you know what, we, we can we can still continue this party without them. So I, let's let's jump into it and let's start with what we've been doing. And it looks like I'm the only one that's been doing anything over the past week. Last week, I went to Orlando, Florida again. <laughs> and this time it was to cover the grand opening of a new ride over at Universal Studios. Islands of Adventure. It's called the Velocicoaster. It's part of the Jurassic World franchise and it's an insane roller coaster. I'm a theme park person but I'm not a roller coaster person. I've I think the extent of what I do <laughs> like for roller coasters is kind of like the, you know, the extreme Disney coasters which I I would say probably aren't that extreme. They probably have like one inversion. So I've never been on a coaster of this magnitude before. And uh it, the cool thing is the first time I went on it we were there for a press day, so they videotaped the whole thing with, like, an expensive red camera that was, like, rigged up to the seats in front of us. And uh, so it was all captured on film, and it looks insane. The ride was insane. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But if if you have not seen this coaster, it, it's so much fun, and you, you your butt doesn't feel like it's touching. It, it, it's, I'm not sure how many coasters do this but usually when you get into a roller coaster you have the harnesses go over your shoulders on this coaster it just it's a lap harness so there's nothing for you to like kind of grab onto it doesn't it feels like for most of the ride you're like in the air like that there's points like there's this roll that goes over the uh, Islands of Adventure Lagoon, I think is what it's called. They call it the Mosasaurus Roll. And it it does this like heartline roll over and it, you literally feel like you're going to fall out. But, you know, because it's you know a well-designed roller coaster. But I'd so say check that out. Uh, it was a blast. But- I've been
4: in those kind of roller coasters before where it was – do you know those Viking ships that they go back and forth? in like oh yeah yeah like the pirate
2: ships and Mm -hmm. stuff right yeah
4: yeah and they have only like a lap seat and one that doesn't even touch your lap (laughs) Uh, it's it's terrifying but the the inertia apparently keeps you in so that it's
2: it's crazy because you know that like it's designed so that you won't fall out but not having those shoulder restraints really makes it feel like times 10
4: yeah, I love that. it. <laughs> I don't <laughs> love theme parks, but I love roller coasters. I'm, a, I'm not an adrenaline junkie per se, but uh, I like the rush every now and then. Yeah.
2: And by the way, the queue for this ride is awesome. It, it You get to get up close with some animatronic velociraptors. Uh, and also there's like this whole ridiculous storyline. I, I have it in the video that uh, we did where they actually have Bryce Dallas Howard and Chris Pratt reprising their roles. And, uh, you know, Howard is saying how the, the the guests of Jurassic World want more teeth. They want more thrills. So they've decided to build this roller coaster through the Raptor paddock. And, of course, Chris Pratt's character is like, oh, that's a bad idea. <laughs> um, so, I mean, it, the the coaster itself is very loosely themed. You go through these like embankments that have like these raptor statues that like roar at you and stuff like that. But, um, it's a lot of fun. I will say that going from it's different because like over the last week, we've kind of opened up, but last week, California was still in like extreme, like you can't walk down the street without a mask. And it was interesting going from there to Florida where in the theme parks, they're like, Oh, you don't have to wear a mask at all. (laughs) <laughs> it was like a, like a totally different world as opposed to when I went to Florida a few months back and all the COVID or all the um CDC restrictions and guidelines were being followed. But now there's like no there's no uh stickers on the ground telling you to social distance. They're they're packing. I, I honestly the only time I felt uncomfortable was when I got into a shuttle and they like literally packed. The shuttle to capacity and I was like you know what I'm gonna take Ubers from now on but um but that leads me into my other thing I wanted to bring up for my Florida trip is I went on some interesting Uber rides now I I'm a you know I don't have a driver's license so in LA before the pandemic before times I t- took a lot of Uber like i i think i was like at whatever the highest level of that like uber has their um customer loyalty program cuz i i use uber so much and honestly i've had really great experiences with ubers i've i've never really had a bad experience that said uh in florida i had some a bunch of interesting uber rides and i'm not sure is it florida is it That most of the good drivers, the drivers that were doing Uber probably quit at this point or what. But uh, at one point, I had to go to Best Buy because I forgot a cable at home because I'm an idiot. And I called an Uber, and like the Uber app was like, oh, this is one of the top Ubers and stuff. I was like, okay, cool. So I get into the guy's SUV. And the second I get into the car, the guy is on speakerphone with his wife. And he's like, I'm going to and kill you if you ever blah, blah, blah. Like he's screaming at the speakerphone. And I'm like, he's already like hit lock and drove off. So I can't get out of the car. And I'm like, oh, no, this is, this is bad. And he gets off the phone with his wife and he's like, I'm so sorry. Like uh, something's going on right now. And I'm like, OK, I'm sure the rest of this ride will be fine. He looks over at me and he says, uh, why are you wearing a mask? Because also when you request Ubers, it tells you you have to wear a mask in an Uber as it should. Um, but like everybody in Florida for some reason doesn't think you need to wear a mask anywhere. And he was like, why are you wearing a mask? And like he started berating me for wearing a mask because Uber told me to wear a mask. And then he asked me what, why I was there. And I told him I was there to cover the Velocicoaster opening at Universal Studios. And the next thing out of his mouth was how funny is it that there's a theme park that has a logo of a round globe when the earth is flat and they have a ride based on dinosaurs, which never existed. Oh boy.
0: Well, you found yourself a winner there, Peter.
2: Yeah. I just sat back. I was like, (laughs) and then he continued to like pull up like Neil the grassy Tyson clips on his phone and mock him while I'm like, dude drive anyways, Ben, (laughs) I know you, you moved to Florida during this pandemic. (laughs) Yes, I did. (laughs) So I think you've probably been mostly at home, but like, is is this an isolated incident or is this? (laughs) No, of course not. Peter, Florida is
0: insane. It always has been. I mean, the, the Florida man thing like is very, very, very real. Uh, So yeah, I'm like, frankly, uh, (laughs) Uh surprised that you've survived the trip. You know, it's just like you're you're taking your life into your hands when you enter the state. Um, I mean, I'm exaggerating, but really kind of not by much because it really is an entirely different world here. So um yeah, I can totally understand some culture shock uh coming from LA and <laughs> Uh, it sounds like you got a a very special individual there. So I, I wouldn't go as far as to say that that man speaks for the entire state of Florida, but uh, and the you know the the beliefs of all the people here. But um, I would say that that the the state's <laughs> beliefs uh, trend closer to that guy than um, I don't know you or me. So hmm.
2: yeah, uh, and <laughs> uh, also I what else was the other thing I want to mention? Oh. It's hot in Florida. I'm not sure if you know this, Ben. Yes, Peter, yes. <laughs> how how do you deal with this heat? Because, I mean, I was lucky I, I bought before this trip, like, this neck fan, which looks almost like headphones, like you're wearing headphones around your neck, mm-hmm. and it was a lifesaver. But I don't want to say it, like, was, like, night and day difference. So, like, I, I don't think I would go out in that heat without one, but at the same time, I don't think it, like, helped me, you know, it helped me, like, maybe 20%.
0: Yeah. Like yeah. There's, there's really no good way around it. You're just like, if you're in Florida and you're outside in the summer, you are going to be straight up miserable and there's no way there's no, there's nothing you can do about it. It's just like, that's how it is. So um, you just sort of have to get used to it as best you can. And uh, air conditioning obviously is a lifesaver. Like when I was in LA, I had uh, <laughs> at my apartment, just a like a window unit in the living room. And I didn't even have air conditioning anywhere else in my little whatever it was, two bedroom uh, apartment. So we got like pretty hot there. But um, but at least in Florida, I have, I have air conditioning everywhere. And that's like, you know, if you spend most of your time <laughs> inside, you're good. But um, yeah, like I, I just played golf with my dad this morning for an early Father's Day thing. And it was just, you know, I, I was like, okay, well, let's play at 8am before it gets really hot. And by like the eighth hole or something, it was just... Like my shirt was completely soaked through. <laughs> like I wasn't even uh I wasn't even working very hard. It was just like the humidity and and everything is out of control. Yeah.
2: I don't know. The weird thing is like I feel like everybody there doesn't look like they're a mess, but like I felt like the biggest mess. Like I just felt like I was sweating. I talked to uh one of our theme park vlogger friends who lives there, and I was like, How do you do this? And he was like, Oh, I only go in the mornings or at night. I don't it's I don't go during the midday. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> which is funny. Okay, enough of. Um, if you want to check out my Florida adventures, I'll put some links in the show notes to uh, the the, the coaster. We also went to this Jurassic World tribute store, which was a huge, like, mega store that they themed out to Jurassic World. It was very cool. Uh, but uh, let's move on. Let's talk about uh, what we've been reading. HT, what have you been reading?
4: I've been doing a lot of reading. Um, I read "Crying in H Mart" by Michelle Zauner, who is the, um, the singer behind Japanese Breakfast, the music group, and uh, I guess she's just—that's just her music pseudonym. Um, but it is a memoir um, that talks about her relationship with her mother and how she um, and how that changed over the years after her mother was diagnosed with cancer, and how she dealt with the grief of losing her mother in the aftermath and um, also her her uh, mixed Korean American identity and everything that went into that. And it's a really, really great read, actually. Um, I was quite surprised by how much I sped through this. It reads almost like a narrative uh, piece of fiction and that's, I feel like, the sign of any good memoir, that just the plot and the stories and the character just kind of takes you along so much that you forget you're reading about a real person. And yeah, it's it's a great book, uh, very moving. I cried, and I read, I bought this, actually, before I realized, before it was reported that it was going to become a movie under an MGM, so it's going to be adapted into a film. Uh, and it's a great uh, story to be adapted into film. Like I said, it feels very narrative. So uh, I'm excited for the movie, and I, I just... I finished it up in like a week or two. It's a great book. So that's Crying in H Mart by Michelle uh, The Next book I read or am currently reading is Mexican Gothic by Silvia Moreno-Garcia. And this is as you kind of expect to be. It's a gothic sort of horror slash romance uh, that is set in Mexico. And it kind of takes a, a really different spin on the gothic genre because gothic Gothic literature is usually takes place in Europe generally the u k and is very distinctly tied to that um sort of pre post edwardian uh time period uh, and the moors and the crumbling gothic manners and stuff and uh, very it's very specific to that time period and the the commentary about society and how it's actually rotten underneath it's a very literal metaphor um and i adore the gothic genre so i was excited to see this taken on it with the new spin in a contemporary lens too uh, so this is excellent so far i've only gotten a couple chapters in but it plays really deliciously into all of the the kind of tropes you expect of the gothic genre it follows a young woman who is uh, quite well off. She comes from a wealthy family, and her her cousin has married off into this this British family living uh, in in Mexico, and they've kind of taken their own piece of Britain and planted it there, uh, and uh, are a sort of old moneyed but losing their wealth type of family and she receives a letter from her cousin that is kind of garbled and indecipherable it sounds like she's gone she's lost her mind and she the cousin claims to have to be be poisoned by her husband's family and so she goes to visit her cousin to investigate and find out what's happening and it's like on this dangerous precarious cliffside everyone is just very dour and secretive I love it it's so it's it's a very very exciting sort of lurid type of book uh, I'm really enjoying it so far so that's Mexican Gothic by Silvia Moreno Garcia and lastly I talked last time about Haikyuu the volleyball high school volleyball anime that I'm in love with, and I can't stop thinking about it. I just, <laughs> I'm obsessed with it. As I, am tend to, as I tend to do, I kind of fall into a lot of obsessions. And uh, I sped through all four seasons of High that are now available. The most recent season aired in 2020, and I don't know when the next season is happening. The COVID pandemic has hit the anime industry hard, and there are a lot of productions that are kind of stalled because of that. So in the interim, I've decided to pick up the manga. And it's not the same. The, anim- the story in particular, like sports animes, just play so well in movement, in anime form. And even though it's drawn really um, spectacularly and with great energy, I just, I miss reading it. Um, I miss watching it on the screen. I am also reading it on my phone, so... It's not quite the same, of course, because a smaller screen is not the same as reading it in a book. But um, I just – I really – I want the anime to come back. I'm very sad.
2: Wait. So on, <laughs> on your phone, are you still reading it from right to left? Yes. Yeah.
4: Yeah. It's still – this template is still right to left. For those who don't know, manga is um, structured in the right to left format because that's how Japanese people read from right to left and the comic panels are structured in a similar way. So I've, I've long gotten used to that. I've been reading manga right to left since I was in middle school. So I'm an old hat with that kind of stuff. Um, But yeah, I I miss the the Haikyuu anime. I'm really sad. I might just rewatch the entire thing, honestly. That's how deep in I am about these boys. Their love for volleyball and their team <laughs> team teamwork. They're not just friends; they're teammates. They trust each other inherently. Okay, I'm done. All right, that's high
2: <laughs> You make me want to watch this HG, but I, I have mean. a feeling I'm not going to like it.
4: Why? 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 Is this wrong I with don't my know. I'm not a big
2: anime person. I mean,
4: it's like I I. I wholeheartedly think it's a good gateway anime because it's a sports anime sports stories are generally very easy to follow um they're you know a universal language it's just and they're so good it's the boys are so good <laughs> i love
1: them That's anyways
4: good. haikyuu highly recommend anime the manga too but not as much as the anime
2: okay let's move on to brad brad you've been reading this week
3: uh indeed i have um not too long ago i finally got around to finishing up my read of uh, the the office oral history, and so I decided to dive into uh, another oral history, one that I've, I've had on my shelf for a while and sitting on, and just felt like uh, finally getting around to reading, and that is uh, Slimed, an oral history of Nickelodeon's golden age. Uh, I'm a Nickelodeon kid, uh, grew up watching uh, Nicktoons and Double Dare and Guts and uh, Legends of the Hidden Temple and all that jazz, and so uh, I'm always interested to dig into the history. Um, of that cable network and how they just kind of uh, carved their own path and became this you know huge channel that rivaled the likes of, of Disney and whatnot. And um, while I, the subject matter itself is interesting, I'm a little bit frustrated by how the book itself is structured because after coming off reading The Office World History, it, which went in essentially chronological order from the creation of the show and then through every season... Um, up until you know recent rumors of there being a reboot, it was easy to follow along with everyone talking about various points of the show's narrative and when certain things happen and new characters and when cast members left and all that kind of thing. Um, and with but with this Nickelodeon one, it's not a chronological oral history of how Nickelodeon uh, rose to be this you know huge giant cable channel for kids. It's like separated into different. Um, chapters that like are separated by subject matter and there's kind of some they're they're very broad subjects but then they include these like little details that they it feels like they kind of just fit in there because they weren't sure where else to put it and it also kind of throws you into it without providing much context um, like for example the first section is called the tween what was it like to grow up on Nickelodeon And it talks to a bunch of the young cast members who were on shows like Pete and Pete and Claire explains it all salute your shorts, but it doesn't provide any context to to remind you like who certain actors are, if you've forgotten or you never knew their names, because it's been so long since you've watched the show or even, uh, letting you know which people are like the creators or producers or writers of certain shows. And so there, there is a guide in the back of the book, um, That tells you who everybody is, but I kind of just wish that it would have just done it along the way, in much in the same way that like a documentary does, where when it shows you a talking head, it gives you a little piece of information of oh here's why it's you know good you're hearing from this person and why they're important to this part of Nickelodeon history, and so it's a little bit frustrating and kind of head scratching when you're going through it because even though these people are saying some interesting things, when their quotes don't always provide context for. What show they're talking about. So there was times when I was getting quotes from people, and they don't mention the title of the show. And then I have to go look around and be like, oh, they're talking about Roundhouse or oh, they're talking about (laughs) all that. So it's kind of a frustrating read as fascinating as the material is, but I'm making my way through it. And um, it's, it's fine. It's fine. I just wish it was it was organized much differently, especially because like, one of the other big oral histories I read was um, Live from New York, which chronicles the, you know, the history of Saturday Night Live. And that's also a very well-organized chronological spanning of that show. And so I don't know why the writer, uh, Matthew Klickstein chose to structure the book this way, but it's kind of frustrating.
2: Yeah, the history of Nickelodeon is actually kind of fascinating. I mean, even calling this slimed, because the whole slime thing, they kind of stole from Canada right? Like they stole from the, you can't, you can't do that on television, which wasn't even a Nickelodeon thing.
3: Yeah, it was, you know, the show was like put on Nickelodeon, but it wasn't their original. And then they kind of started adapting the slime and using it in other shows. And it became uh, their their trademark thing. But uh, yeah, it's um, honestly, like I, I'm not done with the book yet. You know, I, I'm sure it's, you know, I'll be just as frustrated with the structure later as I am now. <laughs> and I I feel like if you're looking to dive into history of Nickelodeon, you just might be better served going and watching uh, the Orange Years documentary, which is available on Hulu. Yeah.
2: Well, the big question is, Brad, th- th- is Mark Summers interviewed in this?
3: Uh, not only is he interviewed, but he provides the foreword at the beginning of the book. So yeah, he's he's definitely in there.
2: Okay, because I wouldn't read it if he wasn't involved. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's move on to what we've been watching. Uh, you know, there's new stuff coming out, guys. It's It's really exciting. And it, we're actually going to be talking about the same films and TV shows for once because, like, there's new big stuff that is being released. So let's, um, let's first start with Black Widow. This is the film from Marvel, uh, from Disney and Marvel, uh, star- starring Scarlett Johansson. Um, and I got to be honest with you, uh, t- 2020, I. I I feel like there was a lot of movies that got pushed that I'm not sure if it was the year and it getting pushed that made me that had my like interest waning in in some of these properties, but it it tended to happen with a a couple of these things that got pushed. And one of those was black widow where when I first saw some footage of that, I think, was that comic-con or D23? I think it was comic-con. I was really excited for it. And as you know, the, the years went on and on because this thing was filmed before the pandemic. Um, I think I lost interest in a Black Widow movie. I'm I'm not sure why. I I can't tell you. Like I don't know. It, some some of the beats in the trailers and stuff just didn't have me excited. And maybe it's also the fact that uh, spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't seen Endgame. But uh, you know the main character is, is, is dead. So you're telling a story that's a, a prequel story that I know this sounds bad, but like it has no huge repercussions on the canon. Well, I mean, it does because it sets up some new characters that will end up being a big part of the canon going forward. But um, so when I sat down to watch this, I had, had very low expectations and I got to say, I, I, enjoyed this movie more than i thought i was going to enjoy it is it a great marvel movie no i think it's like a third tier marvel movie but the the first half of the movie is is very solid and real quick peter what do you mean third tier what what are the what are the tiers <laughs> you want me to lay out the tier i think like down with like ant-man and the wasp and um you know thor dark world <laughs> Mm. Oh, wow. Th-
0: okay. All right. So, oh, no. so but
2: what you're saying is there are only three tiers, because if Thor the Dark
0: World is there, <laughs> then th- there's nowhere to go below that, right?
2: Uh, well, yeah. Well, Iron Man 2, I think is worse than Thor the Dark World, mm. but that that's my opinion. But, uh, you know, this isn't a bad movie. I just think, you know, it's trying to replicate what you see in in better spy movies like the Bourne films or even, you know, trying to do what mission impossible does. And it, it, it's better in those movies. And in the second half of this movie, like, I don't know, the first half of this movie is actually kind of solid. I was actually into it and I was actually very surprised in this first half of this movie. And then the second half, uh, <laughs> you know, how I was saying they were b- borrowing from Bourne and mission impossible and Bond and stuff like that in the first half. And I feel like the second half, just like the, that third, um, the climactic battle at the end of this movie just feels like something out of like a Fox Marvel movie. It's just so badly done. And I don't care about any of what's going on. And, uh, but I don't know. I, I think I liked it more than HT because I was talking to HT about this in the Slack channel. HT, what, do you, what did you think of Black Widow?
4: Well, I gave my reaction to it on was it yesterday's podcast, Ben. Was it Wednesday?
0: I yeah, remember. I think it was yesterday.
4: Yeah. Um, so I, I mean, I didn't hate it. I think it's a perfectly fine, okay movie. But, uh, and I agree with you that the first half is, is pretty strong. It's it's solid stuff. But the third act, I just was like, I was very tuned out. I did not enjoy it at all. And I think that, I said in the Slack, I, it was a big, it was a big fart of a third act. <laughs> uh, which is probably a little mean. It's, there's just the elements just don't all come together. The villain is not it, it, it's also funny
2: because when they get to that third act, you're like, "Oh my god, they're going here," and then you're like, "Oh, they're going here." <laughs>
4: yeah, I mean. it, it, it just it it ha- it did not give me a reason to really care about what was happening in the third act. By the yeah. time these characters came to where they were, and I was like, "I don't really I like." There's big emotional beats in that climax that I felt nothing for, which I felt very odd because I liked the. The dynamics and the banter between the characters at the beginning, and I was just wondering why it was, that was, and I just, I just felt like it was a, yeah, it's, it's a serviceable movie, but I found it very disposable. Um, so much so that I, I, think it should have been a Disney Plus series because it kind of acts almost like a Disney Plus series in terms of just how it, it, it bridges the gaps between movies, uh, but isn't explicitly like something that, you know, feels like it is worth telling on its own. It feels, I like that's a, a nice standalone story on its own, but um, yeah, I wasn't impressed by it.
2: Yeah. Except I, by I really Florence liked, Pugh. Yeah. I was going to say, I like Florence and I liked uh, uh, Rachel Weiss. I thought she did, like, I've never seen her do comedy before. So it was fun to see her do some. You haven't like, seen little... The Mummy,
4: Peter? Oh yeah. She's wait, actually I have seen it. I mommy. have seen The Mummy.
2: Okay. Maybe. Okay. I'm lying. I've seen both those movies and I love her and Brothers Bloom. I don't, i, I got to revisit The Mummy. I haven't seen The Mummy in many years.
4: It's a years. perfect action movie.
2: Yeah. I do want to say I didn't like David Harbour in this movie. I felt like he was going a little too hard on the comedy and also his accent. I mean, all the accents in this movie are bad, but like I felt like his accent was particularly horrible. I
4: actually enjoyed David Harbour more than you. Uh, I just think he's yeah. a really charismatic <laughs> person even when he's doing a bad Russian accent but I liked him I liked his performance but uh yeah I can see why it doesn't it wouldn't completely go go all over with you
2: okay let's move on to another Disney film and this is Luca this is from Pixar and since uh HT and I have both done some talking thus far I'm gonna start with Brad Brad what did you think of Luca
3: uh I really like this movie a lot it's um it's such a, a charming coming-of-age story about, you know, summer friendships and the kind of friendship that, like, uh, changes you and gives you a new perspective on, you know, your your young life and, and your parents and, you know, the things that you lament, you know, about your own life and uh, how other kids' kids live. And, you like, you start, you know, it's a story about when you start figuring out that, you know, the kids around you are all dealing with different kinds of things. Um, and the one thing that I think I love most about this movie too, is how it allows, uh, it's a Pixar movie that doesn't feel like it's crafted in the same traditional animation style that we've expected from the studio. It has a little bit more, uh, of an artistic touch to it. And that's not to say that other Pixar movies, you know, don't have genuine artistry behind them, but it it, it feels like that there's a a certain style that Pixar adheres, adheres to. And the character designs here feel like they call, um lean a little bit more into art and animation especially with the the eyes and mouth movements and facial expressions um and it just felt it feels more cartoony i guess you could say um than than other pixar movies which have, have strived for realism um and i, I just, at this point i want to toss it over to ht because um she wrote a great review for slash film and like I, I really like her her perspective on how this movie stands out from the rest of pixar's movies even though it seems like it doesn't at
4: first Yes, um, I would encourage you first to read my review because I'm really proud of it and I want as many people to read it as, as possible. But um, yeah, I absolutely adored Luca. I think that it's a low-key, small-scale movie for sure, but I don't think that makes it any lesser. If anything, I think that's an even more impressive feat for Pixar and for Western animation in general because a lot of Hollywood Western movies tend to... Um, I don't wanna say look down on, on kid audiences, but tend to try to appeal to children in a way that I think uh, is, is too fast. Like they try to att- grab their attention so much. And I like that Luca takes it slow and lets you live with these characters and lets you breathe with them. And I wrote about this in my review, um, the concept of Ma, which is a Japanese concept commonly seen in Studio Ghibli and Hayao Miyazaki films. Uh, which is which refers to the space between actions, the space between words. like it means negative space essentially. And there's a little bit of that in Luca, which I was really surprised to see. and it just kind of holds you there and lets you be. And I adored that that was part of this film, and that it felt, in that sense, like there's a even more of an authenticity. Uh, to these kind of friendships and coming of age story that we 've seen before many times and many stories, but um just felt like it was uh approaching it from a very organic way uh that I really enjoyed so um I hope that uh articulates as well as uh, what i what I mean but uh just go read my review guys
2: Ben, what did you think of Luca?
0: Hmm. Uh, I think it's kind of mid-tier Pixar, honestly. Um, I, I love what HG is talking about. I wish the movie was like, had way more of that, um, had, had way more time to, you know, to give us with these characters. I, I know it's, it's, uh, it moves at a glacial pace compared to a lot of modern day animation. And so it certainly is like, um, is worth bringing up that point. And, and this movie does stand out, uh, because of its slower pace but i i just wish it was um it had more time to sort of luxuriate in in all of this and in like okay so here's a perfect example the beginning of the movie there's this big i don't know it seems like 10 or 15 minutes of luca under the sea with his family and there's this whole thing where he's like a a shepherd like a sea monster shepherd of these fish that sort of you know seem to be um problematic for him like you know going off or whatever it's like his his job basically is to sort of wrangle these fish and they were spending so much time in that part of the movie that i was like okay this is a, a clearly some sort of setup for something that's going to happen later in the movie because they're spending an awful lot of time here um uh, they're really underlining you know luca um you know he creates this fake uh this you know like stuffed version of himself basically, and and he sort of sneaks off to to um, the the uh, the land above, you know, the very um, Little Mermaid style. And I'm thinking, okay, like you know, as this movie progresses, they're definitely going to come back to this whole you know shepherd thing, and the fish are going to have to be major parts of what's going on, or like. His, he's going to get in trouble because he left his post, and and there's something very important about all this. And no, like the movie doesn't care about any of that at all. And it just happened to spend 10 to 15 minutes to set this up. When I feel like those, you know, of course you need some context for for the story and and why there is a uh, a dichotomy, a juxtaposition, a difference between the underwater world and the uh, Italian, you know, sun dappled landscape that is so gorgeously depicted in this movie, but I just wanted more of the Italian stuff. I wanted more, you know, lean into, show me more of the countryside, show me, um, you know, more of the food, show me like really, uh, embrace this concept in a way that takes me to this, um, world that Pixar has never depicted before, but, Outside of just that one little town square, I didn't really feel like there was a great sense of um, culture or this community or anything. It just felt like very small to me. And I know that some people will see that as a plus, especially in terms of the scale. And like the last few Pixar movies have been about you know existential crises and all of that kind of stuff. And I, I like the fact that the scope of this movie is small. I just wish that um, it could have leaned into the beauty of it a little bit more and, and had more time for those moments in between moments like HD was talking about um, and didn't sort of, in my view, waste so much time on stuff that didn't really matter um, otherwise. But uh, otherwise, I, I mean, I, yeah, I still, I still like enjoyed the movie. I'd give it, I don't know, like a six or seven out of 10 or something, but um, I've seen a ton of praise for it and haven't really seen people bring up those issues. So once again, I become the guy who sounds like I didn't like the movie, just you know, from raising these points. But that's a I'm, I'm fine, oper- you know, uh, holding that position on this podcast. Is I just feel like I want to give some voice to uh, to a little bit of dissent there. But um, what do you think about it, Peter?
2: I think we're actually on the same exact page with this one, Ben. I, it was just strange because you know, a water cooler where we're going to be discussing the next, the new big Marvel and Pixar films, and you'd think I would be the the one most glowing about them (laughs) and i feel like i'm I'm the hater at, at, at this point uh but i don't know i i i do believe i do agree it's a beautiful vibrant movie i do love the themes that it's trying to touch on i do love the idea of exploring this part of this world to me it almost felt like the same problem that onward had and onward's not as good of a movie as luca so i don't want to compare it to onward But what I felt from onward and I feel also from this is it feels like a combination of like three different ideas that don't quite gel together. Like if you do the Venn diagram, they kind of meet in the middle a little bit and don't overlap in the way that normally Pixar movies do. Like, you know, there's this whole – this Vespa race thing and then there's the whole friendship thing and then there's the whole being a monster that's hiding on like and it it doesn't quite feel like those ideas gel together in the brilliance that Pixar usually brings to the table but that that said I I I would give this like a 6.5 or 7 out of 10 even the worst Pixar movies are good movies I do want to shout out something I I think None of you guys have brought up so far, but like the, the music in this movie by, uh, I think the composer's name is Dan Romer. He's the guy that did, uh, the music for beasts of Southern wild. I really love the music in this. And I, I, I want to see more of his work in films because I just love that upbeat, like, I don't know. He just brings like a really interesting vibe that I sounds unlike any other composer. But um,
3: not just the score, uh, but the soundtrack, uh, the, the various um, songs that they use, the Italian songs that they use, are just wonderful throughout the movie as well. Yes, agreed. The
4: score was supposed to apparently be an homage to Ennio Morricone, too. So I think that that's within the score as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: for sure. Okay, so I think we'd all agree you should check out Luca, uh, some, some of us more than others. Uh yes. but let's move on to In the Heights. Um who should I start off? Uh, ben, do you want to talk about In the Heights?
0: Uh sure, yeah, In the Heights uh is the the musical that Lin-Manuel Miranda wrote before Hamilton. I think this was like the the musical that won him his first Tony. It came out originally on stage around 2008 or so if I remember correctly and um now this movie which has been I think filmed and and finished for a long time it was supposed to come out last year it was pushed. Uh, and now it's out on in theaters and on HBO Max. Uh, John M. Chu directed the uh, the, the film version, and um, hmm, how do I talk about this? Uh, I liked certain aspects of this a lot. Um, I think the direction is great. I think most of the music is is really solid. I especially love Corey Hawkins in this movie. He's he is uh, the second he comes on screen, it strikes me as just one of those like great movie star super charismatic performances that um that we're going to be looking back on and, and citing in years to come as cory hawkins continues to to ascend in the the hollywood ranks um i feel like this is going to be one of those touch point uh, performances where people are always like oh man yeah and he was so great in that movie he was like one of the standout performers in this i thought um he was from uh, straight out of compton and he's been in a, a bunch of other stuff, but um, I thought he was, I think he's my favorite part of this whole movie, even though he plays a sort of supporting character who basically like disappears from the movie for uh, not the, the full back half of it, but a, a big chunk of it. And I really wish that um, the movie had more time to focus on him and his story, uh, the the romantic story that he was involved with, because the, the central one, um, which uh, involves uh, or sort of revolves around Anthony Ramos's character, um, was not quite as interesting to me, uh, and it, it's it's still good. Like I overall, I liked In the Heights. It's a it's a uh, it was an enjoyable movie, and I think the the musical aspect of it, and the direction, and the sort of vibrancy of the um, the culture depicted here, and the um, the specificity of these areas of New York, all of that combined to be this really like interesting sort of buoyant uh, like good time at the movies kind of vibe. Um, so I, I enjoyed it. There are just aspects of it that um, felt a little awkward to me, felt a little, uh, you know, maybe spread too thin at certain points. Uh, it's a little bit of a longer movie. So you sort of, I, I felt the, the length a little bit more than I would have liked. Um, but yeah, there, there are aspects of this that I, I really enjoyed. So um, uh, I guess a, a mixed positive for me. Yeah.
2: I think I like the movie a bit more than you. But, you know, it's just I love how Chu has brought to life these musical numbers for the big screen. Like, particularly, I don't want to spoil anything, but there's this uh, dancing on a fire escape late in the movie. And I don't know. He just does some very creative stuff. And I I love um, I fell in love with some of the characters in this movie. And uh, I, I do agree. I think it's probably like 20 or 30 minutes too long. I'm almost curious to like go read the, the the playbook and to see what was added and what was changed because I'm, I'm wondering, you know, what it does feel like there's some fat in there that they could have gotten rid of. Well, one thing that it. was added,
4: that they definitely could have gotten rid of was that framing device
2: um.
3: uh, that
4: Chris and I were, I think both criticizing. Uh, it's the, the the frame of which is Anthony Ramos's character is telling the story of the Heights to a group of children. Oh, weird, uh,
2: because I honestly thought that was like a thing. Because usually, you know, plays have like, you know, the storyteller that sets up the story. And I thought for sure that was in it, but oh, wow.
4: Yeah, it's, it's added and it also doesn't, I feel like it doesn't add anything to the movie. If anything, it takes away some of the energy that the movie is building during some of these musical sequences to sort of interrupt and be like, look at these kids laughing.
2: (laughs) Hmm. Um, I think I agree with that too. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree there. I I love the music. Uh, I'm going to, you know, listen to the soundtrack. Uh, Why (laughs) HT? you lived in New York. You live in New York. Yes. Um, Why is there so many stories set during heat waves in the summer, in blackouts in New so, York City,
4: it's so hot. It's so hot in New York when it's in the summer. You don't, you have no idea, Peter. I mean, I guess you were in Florida, so you have some idea. And you both live in like warm, uh, warm states, but my God, it gets so hot. Like this past week was okay, but two weeks ago, it was ninety degrees consistently every day. And the thing about New York buildings is that they're all very old and you have maybe one window unit, window AC unit that only blows in one room. And you're just like sitting next to fans the entire time and sweating while you're sitting. And <laughs> it's just that feeling of just sitting in your sweats and tensions and, and emotions being on high because of that. And this is the way that New York is is built, I guess this, the heat is caught within all those buildings. Just has that very specific feeling. So yeah, And that
0: huge number of people too, yeah. all crammed into one space. All I mean, the people, I feel like that's
4: the smell, yeah. everything. <laughs> it's very specific. And it's just like it happens every summer. And I'm always I'm always a little surprised. God, yeah, New York in the summer.
2: I will say that I think I've only been in New York one time during the summer. And I think the most I was uncomfortable for at all was waiting in a subway station during the middle of like that summer for like 20 minutes. I remember like sitting on the floor and it just like covered it. Yeah. Because it's like, what? Like it must be like 10, 20 more degrees in the Mm -hmm. subway station than it is, or at least it was back then. maybe they got AC at
4: this Uh, point. No, they don't (laughs) Uh, in some of the stations. It depends on which station you're in. Some of them are really old and they haven't, you know, renovated them in a while.
2: Okay. Brad, we haven't heard from you. What did you think of in the Heights?
3: Um I really liked it a lot. It's uh it certainly has flaws. I will agree that it feels a little bit too long. There's there's a couple songs I think you can easily cut that don't really add too much, but it's such a vibrant, colorful, you know, joyous musical and um having it be, you know, so so focused on um you know the, this community in New York even though they they've re- obviously Lin-Manuel Miranda has see- received some criticism uh you know for colorism and kind of ignoring part of the community in in this uh, movie, it's still nice to see, you know, such big representation, um, you know, of, of Latin characters, you know, I'm, I'm half Mexican, I have, you know, uh, Mexican family on my mom's side. And so, uh, you know, seeing this kind of representation is very cool. There's, you know, I love the, the mix of English and Spanish and just like how it dips into, uh, the culture and everything. And, uh, I was so impressed by how, like, big these musical numbers are like you can get lost just like watching all the dancers in the background of these scenes and the the choreography is, is unbelievable i especially love um the sequence at the pool you know w- with all all the dancing and coordination um in this you know giant city pool and there's just so many things things to love about this movie that like the the shortcomings didn't really take anything uh, away from it for me. I just, I I loved it. And it's, it's, you know, I'll be listening to the soundtrack for, for a long time. And yeah, it was just great.
2: It's kind of interesting because this movie and the play are a celebration of this neighborhood. And it, you know, talks about how it's probably, you know, gentrification and what's happened to, to it. But at the same time, isn't the success of this play and this movie going to make that happen faster do you know what I mean? Like it like it, it, doesn't it glorify this neighborhood and then now
1: It's
4: like the Joker you know, steps.
2: Yeah, the, the rich people <laughs> want to move in and then it kicks the the people that made this neighborhood great out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Uh so it's <laughs> it's tough. Anyways, uh okay, let's talk about uh Bo Burnham's inside H T. What did you think?
4: It's great. Um I feel like I don't have anything much to add to it beside <laughs> what everyone else has already said. Um, I actually recommend uh, reading Ben's quarantine stream or actually the daily stream about it because we've now uh, turned it into the daily stream uh, and it's the first of our daily stream articles. So he wrote a great piece on it. Um, but I came into this actually having known about Bo Burnham for a while, I listened to him uh, and was watching his YouTube videos way back when he was a mop top 17 year old kid. Um, and I I was a pretty big fan. I, I, I think I had his first CD. And he was actually my first ever interview that I did uh, when I was in my college newspaper. So And I was over the phone. I was very nervous. I think he could tell. So he was just like, laughing at me. But he's a very nice person from what I remember. I'm sure Fame hasn't gotten to his head or, you know, the depression that he talks about in, in in Inside, but um he he's just a fantastic, really clever, really honest comedian and just watching Inside and seeing how his sort of process changed and his mental headspace changed throughout the the course of the pandemic uh was really just amazing to watch and a little, you know, and saddening and uncomfortable, but in a way that is intentional, but he's, he's a really uh, just great and clever comedian. Um, And it's interesting seeing how he's evolved since those early days. After I watched the inside, I kind of went back to some of his early, early stuff back when he was writing sort of uh, and performing these sort of politically incorrect satires of rap, which were, which are still pretty funny. They hold up. I, um, I recommend checking out, uh, Oboe and Repeat Stuff. Repeat Stuff actually, uh, was basically Popstar, Never Stop, Never Stopping before Popstar. And I was kind of amazed that that didn't get, I mean, didn't get as, as much attention because it wasn't a feature film, but, uh, it really preceded that and, um, is still really good and really catchy. Uh, but yeah, there's this one song that he wrote uh, during one of his tours, um, his stand-up comedy specials. Uh, that was that's called "Art Is Dead," and talks about how he is has, is dealing with all this kind of imperson uh, imposter syndrome and um, and that kind of beginnings of that mental illness that he displays, not mental, mental um, health that he displays in um, uh, inside and talk and deals with and uh it's it's interesting how that's almost a continuation of that song in particular so he's great and i absolutely love him and I'm happy that he's you know, i hope he's doing well i hope he's gotten out of out of the room and um yeah just a fantastic commentary on our current social media landscape and and mental health and um thank you for being so honest though
2: ben you also saw this I did.
0: Yeah. I, I think this is a masterpiece. Um, I mean, that may be like a, uh, a basic take at this point. Cause this, this came out what a c- couple of weeks ago now. And I think there's been, I don't, I don't know if there's been a backlash to the backlash yet, but, uh, there's, I'm sure there's been, you know, a lot of uh, discussion about this. So we're sort of getting to this a little bit late on the podcast, but, um, yeah, man, I, I just, this is an unreal accomplishment. I just cannot believe that this is the work of a single person. Um, it is, it is just a, um, I'm like at a loss for words because it's just, it's so impressive on so many different levels all at the same time. Um, it's kind of just, I I was literally like in awe watching it. So I, I did not know I knew who Bo Burnham, Bo Burnham was. I, I saw eighth grade and I saw him in Promising Young Woman, but those were kind of the only things I knew him from. Um, I knew of, of him, but I had never seen any of his previous comedy specials. And I actually went back and watched uh, Bo Burnham, what and uh, Bo Burnham make happy, which are both streaming on Netflix right now after I watched inside and um, boy, comedy was in a different place uh, <laughs> a few years ago. Like there are some moments in those that um that do not necessarily hold up, uh, you know, in uh, through a 2021 lens, but, um, it is really interesting to watch his evolution as a, as a comedian, because you can see the seeds of all the stuff that, that sort of really bloom wonderfully in inside in those earlier specials and and moments like HD was talking about those, his YouTube videos and all the, the kind of stuff that he was doing all those years ago. You can tell that like, um, there's a, a creative spark and a, uh, a a genius frankly that is that is in him and has been for a long time and just Bo Burnham inside I think is just the the perfect expression of everything that he is feeling at the moment and it just happens to be you know coming at a time where all of us can relate in in some way to those feelings because of what we've all been through over the past year Um, and man the the songs are just like legitimately great, like, like wonderfully produced. And, you know, a lot of times I feel like, you know, uh, comedians who lean on music as part of their shtick can just, you know, grab a guitar or something. And like the music part of it is pretty basic, but like the production aspects of these songs, if you just listen to them as instrumentals, take the lyrics out of it, it really sounds like (laughs) like professionally produced like legit you know this could be like a radio banger kind of thing um for almost all of the songs that he he includes in this, which are many, and all of them are great. So um, there, there are just so many things here that I like. I'll just find myself, you know, weeks after watching this, just walking around my house, going like, "Jeffrey Bezos," <laughs> just, you know, for no reason. Um, but God, yeah, it's just so the the visuals here too. What he's able to do with one camera in one room is just like if you are a person who is looking for inspiration or like looking to see what the what limitations can do, um, and and you know, looking for you know, there's this whole thing this this idea of like we talk about it in terms of Hollywood movies all the time. Like you know, the bigger the budget you have, sometimes you can get into trouble because you have so much money that you can throw at a problem and and whatever that the the project that you're working on sort of gets out of control. But if you are you know working on an independent scale and and you don't have access to all this stuff, you have to force yourself to be creative, to come up with ways around these issues. And if you're looking for like a perfect distillation of what that looks like um, I think Bo Burnham inside is, is uh, a really, really good example of that.
2: I need to see this. I I really only know him from eighth grade and we, uh, I'm part of this critics association, the Hollywood critics association. And we gave him an award, I think for best newcomer or something uh, two years ago and uh, at that award ceremony Scott Mance was hosting it and if you don't know who he is he's a film critic slash television personality you see him on like Access Hollywood and some online things And he's very uh, big (laughs) and uh, and, and, uh, talks a lot and kind of grandstands and it was funny because Bo Burnham you know came up to accept his award instead of uh, actually a heartfelt uh, acceptance speech. He used his time to basically roast Scott Mance and uh, (laughs) basically because Mance was kind of making everything about himself, like how much he loved this movie, how much he loved that movie, how much he loves this director. And it it was funny after the roast from Bo Burnham, uh, Mance felt like he had been taken down. A couple pegs <laughs> so <laughs> that's what I remember uh Bo Burnham, seeing Bo Burnham uh in person anyways um <laughs> let's move on HD, what, what have what else have you been watching
4: uh I watched Tie Me Up Tie Me Down which is the Pedro Almodovar uh dark romantic comedy from 1989 it stars Antonio Banderas uh as a recently released psychiatric patient who kidnaps an actress played by Victoria Abril uh, to make, to force her to fall in love with him. And uh, it's, it's it's a very surprisingly sweet and funny uh, approach to this very dark premise um, and is vibrantly shot and sort of borderline camp in the way that Pedro Maldivar's films are. I, I'm a huge fan of Amal I think that his films are um, a lot of his films are masterpieces. And I think, and this is just such a really fun and enjoyable film to watch, especially with the, the performance by Antonio Banderas. And uh, it's kind of a, kinky take on Beauty and the Beast uh, which I also really enjoyed Beauty and the Beast being one of my favorite stories so uh, it's a lot of fun and I want to use this opportunity to say that about eight Pedro Almodovar films are streaming now on HBO Max, Time Me Up, Time Me Down included. So if you haven't seen of any of Almodovar's films uh, I highly encourage you to check them out. Um, unfortunately one of my favorite of his films, All About My Mother, has left HBO Max it was on there for a little bit but um has now left the service but Volver is there which I've talked about before on the, the water cooler it's a really really fantastic film just about women and stars Penelope Cruz um Penelope Cruz and, and Antonio Banderas are both uh two favorite muses of of, of Amal Devar, and he's one of the few directors who really knows how to use them in a way that just brings out the best in their abilities and makes them really fun and exciting to watch. And so uh, I recommend checking out any of his films on um, on HBO Max and uh, taking a chance to just expand and watch a little bit more on Maldivar. He's great. Uh, his English language, his first English language project actually, starring Tilda Swinton, uh, which is called The Human Voice, it's a short film, uh, is also now streaming on HBO Max. So also recommend Checking that one out as well. I have a review for it on the website, but um, yeah, um, all of our stuff. Time me, da- tie me up, time me down. Uh, all great, and you can watch them now on HBO Max. Uh, what
2: else have you been watching?
4: The other thing I watched is Zola. So I got a screener for this, and this is the the movie uh, that's based on hashtag the story as it's been as it's come to be known, and this refers to the um a story from, I think it was 2015 uh, that played out on Twitter uh, from this woman named Zola um, and she posted this like 200 tweet thread talking about how she and this woman fell out and it's this wild, unhinged story about how she Zola is this um, uh, erotic dancer, she's a stripper basically, uh, who meets this woman at Hooters that she works at and this woman asked her to go on a trip to florida with her and they go on a trip to florida to just like to dance and get some money and she gets caught in this elaborate and wild sort of (laughs) series of events which involves a pimp uh a murder and several just (laughs) people jumping out of out of balconies it's insane it's the most it was the most insane thing i had read on twitter i remember being online being very online at the time and reading it as it was coming out because this was before tweet threading existed and so she was just releasing it a little bit at a time and i'm pretty sure tweet threads (laughs) were invented partially because of the popularity of this this particular story and it was one of the craziest um experiences of being on twitter uh reading that as it was going on and so having it become a film uh and being the most Florida film ever, by the way, speaking of our previous discussion about Florida and Ben, I, I don't know I've, if you ever get a chance to watch it. It's a very Florida film, just <laughs> oozing Florida. Um, it it's, it's captures the insanity and the wildness of the thread, but gives us o- this almost dreamlike, psychedelic fairy tale vibe. Um, it's a lot of fun. It um, comes to theaters June 30th. So if you get a chance to see it in theaters, do check it out. Uh, it's excellent. And um, I have an interview with the director coming out on the site at some point. But um, that's Zola. Cool. That's it.
2: Ben, what else have you been watching?
4: Oh,
0: I watched uh, Enter the Dragon for the first time, which is a Bruce Lee movie from 1973. Have, have, has everybody here seen this movie? Was I the only person who had not seen this?
1: Yes.
3: It?
2: Yes.
0: Brad, you seen mm. Enter the Dragon?
3: No. <gasps>
2: okay. All right. uh, he was trying to so, hide in silence. <laughs> well, I'm, uh,
0: look, I, I mean, I don't want to shame anybody, uh, especially since I'm, you know, just caught up with this movie for the first time. Uh, Brad, I will say that it is on Netflix right now, and it leaves June thirtieth. It's been on Netflix for years. It's been in my queue. And it it was one of those movies that was on Netflix for so long um, that I was just like, oh, they must have bought out the rights to this in perpetuity. So it'll just always be here. So I don't really need to like rush to watch it. I can just leave it in my queue, get around to it whenever. Um, But I saw that it's leaving uh, Netflix on June 30th. So I was like, all right, this is finally going to spur me on into watching this film. Uh, so hopefully if anybody else out there has not seen this and you're interested in it now is, is the very brief window you have to uh, take advantage of it. Um, but yeah, this is like one of the best martial arts movies of all time. It's really, really cool to see, um, how this movie was sort of like, it laid the foundation for, uh, really an entire sub sub genre of, um, of movies, which is like go to an island and participate in a martial arts tournament movies, which, you know, there are, there have been so many and like, obviously the, the street fighter video games, which inspired the Mortal combat video games, which have spun off into all these different movies and everything. So this is sort of like the, um, like the ur text of, you know, of this, this particular type of martial arts film. Um, and this came out in the, in the early seventies, like I said, 73, that was the same year that Roger Moore played James Bond for the first time. And this movie really feels like a James Bond movie like Bruce Lee plays a spy who is tasked with going to this island and participating in this tournament and like there are some gadgets that are involved and like um you know a lot of sneaking around and and uh, a lot of the same kind of um you know stunts and, and things like that that you would see in the Bond films of this era uh, exist in this movie so um, yeah it, it's really it's kind of a special thing it, it's a little slow in terms of today what you would consider like the the pacing of a modern action film um, but it's still I, I think it's worth watching you know for its its like cultural uh, importance if you know for for that alone but also like Bruce Lee is just so so good in it like his performance is actually legitimately great and then yeah, th- there's some really really cool martial arts stuff in this. So if you like those kinds of movies, um, if you've seen you know a bunch of Tony Jaa films or or the Ip Man movies or whatever, but it haven't gone back and, and checked out Enter the Dragon, I would definitely recommend doing that uh, on Netflix before it, it vanishes at the end of this month. Uh, and then the other only other thing that I wanted to talk about is a, a film called Foreign Correspondent, which Alfred Hitchcock directed in 1940. And we've talked about Rebecca before, which, um, you know, they, they did a Netflix remake not too long ago. And um, Hitchcock directed a version of Rebecca in 1940. So, this same year, and Rebecca and foreign correspondent were both nominated for Best Picture in the same year, which is kind of wild to think about. Um, Rebecca ended up winning, and that was the only Best Picture Oscar that, that Hitchcock ever won. Um, Foreign Correspondent, in my view, is not nearly as good as his uh, version of, of Rebecca, but um, it's still interesting, and I don't really want to give away why I think it's it's that interesting because I want people to watch this, and it's streaming on HBO Max right now, but um, there is a, a set piece. I'll just leave it at that. There's a set piece that happens late in this film that is, um, you know, one of the most impressive things that I've seen uh, from a movie from this period. Uh, just in terms of the scale of it and the sort of out of nowhere-ness of what happens, and just like how Hitchcock was able to sort of wrangle this this huge, huge thing uh, on screen. It's it's incredibly impressive. The story is, um, it's very Hitchcock. It's 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 basically like this guy, uh, reporter um, from the U.S. goes overseas and stumbles upon a, a conspiracy and, and, you know, he's trying to prove that, you know, that, that this person is going to be assassinated and there's is like, on the brink of breaking out. It, it's, it's all kinds of, um, typical Hitchcock, Hitchcockian things. But, uh, so it's not really anything to write home about in terms of like originality, but, um, I think there's enough in here to sort of recommend watching it just because, uh, of that, that what happens at the end. And then the very, very end of the movie is like this really, it takes this hard turn into becoming essentially like a propaganda film because this movie came out, like I said, 1940. So it's before the U S got involved in world war II, And this movie basically ends with this giant call to action for the United States to get involved in what's going on in Europe. So it it was kind of, um, it's a, it's a strange, uh, piece of history as well, um, as just being, you know, a, a typically like entertaining, uh, Hitchcock, mystery kind of political thriller. So
2: that is called Foreign Correspondent, if you want to check that out. Okay, let's move on to Brad. Brad, what else have you been watching?
3: Um, I went to theaters again, uh, did another private screening with some friends to see The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. Um, And I liked it quite a bit, actually. Um, I I think that I might actually enjoy this more than the second Conjuring movie, um, just because I appreciated kind of how it, it... uh didn't deliver a you know this typical sort of haunted house thing but it provided some mystery to it where uh the warrens are trying to figure out um who has uh put a, has been using curses and um bringing p- demonic possessions upon people uh, and i really liked how it just kind of messed yeah messed with the genre a little bit and uh mixed up the formula and delivered something more and plus i you know i just love the core um of the relationship between the warrens uh, in this movie and just how, um, their, their relationship has become a key part of the franchise. You know, that's, um, I feel like the conjuring, uh, you know, universe is one of those things where it's like, it's become the horror version of the Marvel cinematic universe. And it does deliver like blockbuster levels of horror. And uh, it's something that I think that I've missed over the past, you know, year and a half or so, because there've been some good horror movies that have been released, um, to, to streaming and uh, on demand and whatnot. But The Conjuring just it, it delivers, you know, horror on such a, a big level that it was nice to get back into a theater uh, and experience it this way. So, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed the Conjuring. The Devil made me do it.
2: OK, Brad, bring us home. Tell us what you've been eating.
3: All right. Just a few things. Um, there are these new things from Jimmy Dean's called Breakfast Nuggets. And they are awesome. They
2: wait wait, wait a second. Okay, Ben, without looking this up, what do you think breakfast nuggets are? What do you imagine?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, I would say it is a uh, a sort of um a glob of uh. (laughs) Of eggs and bacon and uh, hash browns and sausage all in one. It's like a it's a sausage patty that is comprised of all of those things, but like not quite flat. More of like a like you just squeeze it in the palm of your hand, and it's like this. Yeah, a, a weird little nugget shaped uh, conglomeration of breakfast foods.
2: <laughs> How close is he, Brad?
3: He's kind of almost there. So it's um so so they're in, they're in the shape of chicken nuggets. Um, but instead of having chicken inside of the, the breading, it is it's an amalgamation of uh, eggs, cheese, and sausage. No potatoes, uh, no bacon. They just have sausage. Um, they have regular sausage, and they have chicken sausage versions. Um, and they're they're really really good. Um, this is coming from somebody um, who I also enjoy those Pillsbury uh, scramblers that you put in the toaster. The, the the pastries that have the the eggs and cheese and bacon and or sausage in them. Um, these are actually better than that because the the crispy. Um, breading offers you know a, a different texture and flavor and the the mixture of um egg sausage and cheese it just it just works together a it's kind of like having uh, a fried morsel of an omelet basically um the sausage flavor is a little more overpowering in the regular sausage version and the chicken sausage version kind of lets the egg and the cheese um, shine through a little bit more as far as flavor is concerned um, but they're just, I, I really like them and like, they're good plain. but I also liked dipping them uh, in ketchup because I'm one of those people who, uh, likes occasionally putting, uh, ketchup on scrambled eggs and making like an egg sandwich. Um, so yeah, so, uh, these, they're made by Jimmy Dean's. I found them at, uh, Kroger, which is, has a variety of different stores, um, that go by different names across the region, but I've also seen them at Walmart and stuff like that. So you should be able to find them in like your freezer section at the grocery store if you are curious enough to give
2: them a whirl. Brad, have you ever tried the Jimmy Dean stuffed hash browns?
3: Yes, and they're okay. They're a little too—they're
2: like greasy. Yeah, oh, they're, they're like I was, so the, greasy.
3: yeah, they're very greasy.
2: But It's it, for those of you who don't know, it's like a hash brown, like a like if you imagine like a McDonald's hash brown, it's like a a bar of a hash brown, but filled and it's filled with sausage, ham, bacon, cheddar, and mozzarella cheese.
3: Yeah, they're they're good, but they're very greasy.
2: Okay. What else have you been eating? Um,
3: I also uh, got a good summer treat. Um, it is a Barks root beer float push up. Uh, I found them at Aldi. I'm not sure if they are exclusive to Aldi or if they're available at other places, but I, I remember I had remember seeing these um, a couple years ago, maybe last year or sometime, and I never found them, and I was super disappointed because uh, they I love root beer floats and having it in a push up form like this sounded awesome. And man, these are they're so good it's this perfect mix of essentially you know a root beer popsicle or, or slush with like a vanilla ice cream swirl in it and um the the mixture of the two is just it's so well done and because it's in push up form too it's um it's you know cold at first like a popsicle but since you're holding it in your hand it starts to melt and kind of gets more of that uh root beer float um softness to it but it's yeah they're they're, they're so good and you know um i personally think you know bark is is probably the the better of the the major uh, root beers that are that are out there. Obviously, the more um, craft root beers are like you know the best ones. But when it comes to you know the big uh, soft drink companies, I think Barks is the best. And so these these are really good. So if you can find them, I I wholly recommend them. They're they're really good for the summer. And then um, mm. oh, go ahead, Peter. Oh, just,
2: I was gonna say, and, and what else?
3: Uh, I tried uh, a new cereal um, called Lucky Charms marshmallow clusters. And I was really excited about this because I love Rice Krispie Treat cereal. And the way this this cereal seemed was that it was essentially going to be Lucky Charms, but with Rice Krispie Treats cereal kind of uh, clusters mixed with the normal Lucky Charms marshmallows. Um, But it's a little disappointing because the marshmallow clusters themselves aren't like Rice Krispie Treats. They're more like tiny versions of kicks that have been stuck together. And they're not nearly as flavorful as a rice krispie treat cereal, I was hoping for something a little bit more sweet, uh, but this it has the same kind of uh, sweetness and texture uh, as the the Kix uh, corn puffs. So a little disappointing. Um, I would have much rather preferred something that was more along the lines of a rice krispie treat cereal. But you know, you, you win some and you lose some.
2: Okay, that does it for today's Slash Home Daily. You can find more of Oliver Rourke at SlashHome.com. You can find this podcast on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at peter at SlashHome.com. And please, rate and review this podcast in Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we'll see you on Monday.